Hello and welcome to the first Hell is for Hyphenates for 2011. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, Golden Globe ineligible Lee Zachariah and here as always is... Happy New Year everybody. Uh, I am uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, uh, Academy Award nominee uh, Paul Anthony Nelson and with us today our special guest villain... I am Rob Rominski. I am suit in distribution slash suit in production slash uh, all around shit kicker uh, slash uh, never won an award in my life except for participation. I have never actually seen you wear a suit. I should point out. Yeah. Well, it's just yes. a, an honorary suit. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, uh, they they give us one. We can hang it in our closet. <laughs> take it out if we have to. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Billy Walsh from Entourage would call you a suit. Is that, is that the, <laughs> the he would. He would, yeah. yeah. So how do we feel 2011 has... Uh, what sort of starters it got off to film-wise? Uh, well, it, it, like every year, it starts reasonably strong because we get the Oscar crop. Mm. Um, we, you know, It's always our yearly delayed reaction from everything that comes out in the US in November and December. Um, so it's been a fairly strong start to the year for the most part. But um, yeah, how have, how have you all fi- found it? Uh, I have, yeah, I, I, I agree. The uh, that sort of Oscar holdover where they're suddenly rushing out everything they didn't release in December. You know, the likes of Unstoppable, for instance, Tony mm. Scott's Unstoppable, which oh come on, it's as strong as anything that's come out. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I thought it was uh, it was a pretty good Tony Scott film, um, which in Lee terms means a pretty bad action film, mm. a pretty <laughs> average action film. A uh, terrible Woody Allen film. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you find it? Um, I look. I had fun with it. Um, as a Tony Scott fan, um, you know all of those touches were there. You know the hyperkinetic action, the overheated kind of camera constantly swirling and circling and moving. And there were there were touches about it I really dug. I love that for the first third of the film, he shoots the train as if it were a shark. <laughs> you know, he shoots it like a living, breathing creature which I, that's preying on this. You know, it's like these looming angles. I thought that was really great. Um, uh, there's, I, I, I really like the three lead performances. I really like Washington and, and Pine and um, Dawson. Like within, ad, you know, within an action yeah, framework, yeah. I mean, we're not talking, you know, nominatable performances or anything, mm. but I thought they were all really great. The problem starts when Fox News get involved and start, providing a a Greek chorus to the action that then begins to overpower the action to the point where it's this American studio thing where we have to be told every single little aspect, you know, lest we lose somebody for a minute or two. And it becomes really annoying. And soon we're going away from the lead characters to, you know, miscellaneous Fox News broadcasters. This is is my theory on... on culture at the moment is that nothing is of value unless it's being broadcast unless you've put it on facebook or it's on tv or mm. you know it, nothing is important unless an audience is appreciating it and it's not enough that we're that audience we have to watch an audience <laughs> appreciating it or this high stakes jumping over trains that they're doing has no value whatsoever yeah it needs to redeem them in the eyes of their family or what's the point so is this uh is this reflecting upon the reflection upon the event uh a uh, conscious subtext of of the film or do you think it's just sort of uh you know uh mindlessly aping the times that we live in Mindlessly aping. Yeah, I, I, would I, I wouldn't go. I don't, I'm not sure. I'd say either. I think it's just a reflection of where America's at at the moment, and that's, you know, if the event happened, you know, you'd be watching it on. They'd be watching it on Fox News for 24 hours a day. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a sort of. Um, but the fact that we have to watch it on Fox News yeah, in the cinema, it's not is, fun. Yeah, it's I not don't fun. Know. Um, 
all that stuff aside, I like the train stuff. I like the yeah, I like um, the central dilemma. I thought I thought it created enough suspense. Um, yeah, there's there's a moment at the end though where Denzel Washington, who's this, you know, he's not playing Denzel Washington. He's playing a fifty something, you know, almost, you know, heading towards retirement kind of he's train driver. Denzel and Washington. then, but then there's a point where he starts leaping over train carriages like mm. a twenty year old man, and it's yep. like, no, come on, let's show some strain. Yeah, that took me out of it a little bit. And there's and there's and there's repetition of shots a lot too. Did you notice that? Like, yep. there's just this constant swirl from right to le- uh, from left to right around Denzel every time he looks outside the train to the point where I thought they were using just one stock shot over and over again. Mm. So, as much as I liked about this film, I have extreme reservations. It's, you know, look, it's a silly popcorn good time as long as you concentrate on the central dilemma. It's fun. And it's based on a true story, according to the poster. And then I looked up the true story and discovered what a load of crap. Um (laughs) Another a film that took me by surprise was Morning Glory. Mm. Now, this film, I thought the trailer looked terrible. I thought this was going to be the worst type of Nancy Myers type crap. <laughs> where, and I was, I honestly went in because I, I just enjoy sharpening my knives, and I just happened to be in town for the screening. Uh, and uh, you sound like Bernard King. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every now, I enjoy then. sharpening my knives, and I was in town. <laughs> I happen to be, yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm emphasizing that because uh, it took me by surprise and I really, really liked it. It's a really... Wow. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really good film. The, the thing I was dreading about it was that... Because it's about morning shows and uh, <laughs> I thought it was going to have this, this big speech at the end where, you know, there's a lot that divides us, but every morning America comes together and we watch morning television mm. together. I apologize, Rob. It's a terrible accent I'm doing. Um, but it wasn't. Write it down and I can read it out for you if you want me to. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that in. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't. It was about all the characters in it are really intelligent people and they're all really pissed off that they have to do morning television. <laughs> and the ultimate thing is, yes, you can't do smart things on, tele- on this sort of television because all, all people want is ice cream. And uh, if you want to make money... This is how you have to debase yourself. And I was just, I was wow. admiring the balls of that message. It was uh, it was fantastic, and I loved uh, I loved Harrison Ford for the first time in a long time. Yeah, because yeah. he's they've finally channeled his pissed off persona into something <laughs> grumpy old works. man. Because he he wants to be doing hard news, and he is so pissed off he has to be doing this morning show. It's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I would actually, to my surprise, I'm recommending that. That sounds yeah, that that actually sounds quite good. Tangled, the new Disney mm. film. Now I uh, I've made no secret of how much I love this film. It was uh, it's one of my favorite Disney's of all time. I think they're back in such a big way. It's exactly what they should have been doing all along. Are you do you join me in this adoration? No, nah, not really. No. no? It's um look, uh yeah, actually it's a lot of fun. Mm. It's a lot of fun. It's really cute. The animation's great. Um Maximus the horse is my favorite character in the entire film. Yeah. Because I um uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, it's the Rapunzel story, and um, and Rapunzel escapes her tower with this young near to well who she kind of falls for, um, young thief, and there being um, and him being a thief, he's being hunted by the um, the local authorities, and a horse, uh, the the one of the authorities, a horse becomes like the main pursuer, and there comes a point in the film where I realise, oh my god, Maximus is Tommy Lee Jones in the Fugitive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can he's see that. He's the one that never stops. He's, yeah. he's a t- Sergeant Gerard. And 
I fell in love with it. I yeah. fell in love with him after that. Um, yeah, look, I, I didn't think it was extraordinary in any way. I just thought it was really well executed and very old school. Like when I say old school, nineties. Yeah, it felt of the nineties Disney aesthetic. Um, can can nineties be officially called old school at this stage? <sighs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry to report that. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not too early for a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um, but I'll t- I think I identified what I loved about it so much because I think my favorite. Uh, Disney just straight out Disney film is Alice in Wonderland mm. and yet as much as I like Disney I've always been more of a fan of in terms of old school animation I've preferred Warner Brothers cartoons I've liked yep. the Bugs Bunny style these days I prefer Pixar Alice in Wonderland is like a Disney character who finds herself in a Warner Brothers world yeah. when she goes down the rabbit hole and Tangled is a Disney princess who go, comes out of her tower and finds herself in a Pixar world <laughs> And I think it's that that meshing of styles without going into this painfully self-conscious Shrek-style pop culture references. I did enjoy that. The conspicuous lack of pop culture references. It's refreshing, isn't it? I thought that was great. Um, The thing, I thought some of the main dilemmas in the film resolved themselves a little too easy mm. for me um she you know suddenly realized who she was at a really odd kind of moment because yeah, the yeah. story had to go there it didn't feel organic at all um yeah there was some bits of the storytelling i thought were a bit easy um and and didn't like cause pixar's hard you know like pixar's always so the storytelling is so incredibly um organic and difficult um, whereas in this, it's just yeah, it was a little too pat. Things I another thing I really liked about it was the passive aggressive mother villain. Yeah, I I like I love Jewish that. mother as yes. somebody pointed out to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that take on 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 the Disney villain yeah. on the you know, the evil evil witch type mm-hmm. character. I thought that was great. But yeah, look, there's a lot to like about Tangle. Yeah, um, I saw it in 3D, um, possibly a post convert because it was dark as. So see it in 2D if you can. <laughs> the dilemma. Now you've seen the dilemma. Yeah. You have not. Oh yeah, yeah. We are still in the uh, in the non-scene portion of, of my morning. We'll get we'll get to something soon. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you talk soon. Um, <laughs> but Paul, tell us how uh, was the dilemma? Uh, the dilemma. Um, I th- I thought the dilemma was a really grueling kind of um, tough kind of uh, sort of emotionally bruising drama about um, uh, uh, truth within relationships uh, and how we. Uh, try to value honesty and often break it uh, more than we hope too bad it's a comedy <laughs> uh it's it's not funny there are but that's the thing i, I really i i kept as I, wa- I was watching it it kept occurring to me that like this is a drama this film would work so much better as a drama yeah um even with much of the same cast but the trouble is it's trying so hard to be a comedy and everybody's amped and acting up to like particularly vince vaughn and kevin james are um, acting like they're in some crazy Todd Phillips movie, and they're stuck in a like a Neil Debut film. Like it's really strange, and and so like there's a whole section like well, there's like five minutes of the film where no, well, not probably not five minutes, more like two, mm. where Vince Vaughn is out standing in the middle of the street screaming uh, at somebody that he's going to burn their face off, <laughs> and you're kind of like, this is not funny. <laughs> but I, I I feel that in most comedies, modern comedies. I, I'm watching going, this isn't funny. This is just mean. Yeah. So maybe maybe it fits that genre perfectly. I don't, yeah, I don't, but that's the thing. But there's but there's some good story beats in there, you know. Like, there's some mm. good... There are some genuine dilemmas and there are some, you know... Um, I mean, why Vince Vaughn wouldn't tell his wife about any of this stuff is beyond me. But um, but in terms of the friend and the relationship there and Winona Ryder and all that sort of thing, like there's, there's, um, 
there's stuff in there that within a drama would be perfectly acceptable and would really work if everybody wasn't acting like they were on PCP. Mm. There's a there's a point where Channing Tatum takes a drug like PCP and he's not acting any different from anyone else in the cast. Well, he wouldn't be acting any different than what Channing Tatum normally acts like <laughs> anyway. Oh, Channing. This is true. Now, The Fighter. The Fighter is uh, the new David O. Russell film that was, I believe at one point, and some I may be fudging some of these facts, I believe at one point Darren Aronofsky was going to direct Brad Pitt and Matt Damon in it. Yes. And then... I thought it was Brad Pitt and Mark Wahlberg. And then I think it became Brad Pitt and Mark Wahlberg. I could be misremembering mm. this. Matt Damon could have come out of nowhere. But the cast eventually evolved into Christian Bale and Mark Wahlberg under and, David O. Russell. And yes. the director morphed into David O. Russell. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think it's it's perfect. As much as I love the original setup of the, all those you know actors and director, I think David O. Russell nailed this film. I think the two leads were perfect in their roles. I was really, really impressed with this film. Wow, I I liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, it's I, but that was kind of the level I, I absorbed it on. I think there were some there were some nice dramatic moments, but overall, it kind of felt like that kind of David Russell's main aesthetic to me seems to be raucous. Mm. It seems to be a kind of you know, kind of raucous, slightly unhinged feel to his sense of humour, and I think he definitely introduces it into this. The thing I found interesting about it is, besides the boxing scenes and the very kind of the, the final act felt very American boxing movie, but the first two acts felt more like they they owed more to UK social drama yeah. than a US mm. sports film. Like uh, the characters wouldn't be out of place in a Mike Lee movie with mm. English accents. True. Um, yeah, I look, I love the performances. I thought. Um, Bale was fantastic particularly when you see footage of Dickie Eklund at the end of the film mm. you're just like wow okay because a lot of the film you are thinking maybe he's overdoing it a little bit here but every time you see you you, you find yourself thinking that uh, that actor is really hamming it up and then you see the original go wow no actually that's 100% spot on yeah. <laughs> it's one of those cases again <laughs> Rob, so Rob, you, uh, you know it's a bit of entertainment it was perfectly fine there was a you know few laughs you know a bit of a story um, beyond that just yeah, it didn't it didn't grab me. wasn't a fan, and uh, you know particularly think that uh, uh, Bale's performance is, is is overrated. You know more than anything, uh, what it reminded me of, strangely enough, was uh, Tropic Thunder. <laughs> it particularly yeah. um, uh, uh, simple, simple Jack. Jack. Yeah, he went full crackhead. <laughs> full crackhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he sh- he, he should have gone half crackhead. You know because. It's about finding a tone that creates a character not necessarily, uh, in my opinion at least, um, you know, even if you don't have to be 100% faithful to the, uh, to the person that you're portraying in order to uh, present it to the audience. And, mm-hmm. and um, you, know, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I've, I've you know, known a few crackheads from time to time by acquaintance. And, uh, yeah, they're a lot more boring than he was. Um, <laughs> and the dynamic with the family... Um, I thought that the pendulum swung to such extremes in terms of his relationship with the family, and I think that the gap was a little bit too big uh, to to lead to uh, where it, where it eventually led to. Um, and you mean Wahlberg's relationship? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it it lost me, and 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 his attachment to this notion of family lost me after a certain point, and I was you know, um, yeah, thinking that's uh, just very unappealing people i didn't see what connected him to them um melissa leo's performance was fantastic i mm. think that uh, you know adam's performance was good Wahlberg, with what he had to work with um was good um visually i was you know very very uh 
um, underwhelmed, um, especially the boxing scenes. You and I, Paul, were talking about this before. It's just uh, Russell didn't care about the boxing. It was phoned in. Um, mm. And you could sit there and you can go, you know, Rocky, Raging Bull, Rocky, Raging yeah. Bull. And, and I don't know that he brought much new to the table I there. I did feel that about a lot of the boxing scenes. I thought he was a little more invested in the one at the end, but but the, particularly the montages throughout the film. It seemed yeah. like he was just trying to get through the montages to get back to the, the social drama. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing that appealed to me most about it was just in terms of that notion about a family is that I actually find boxing really repellent, but I love it on film mm. because it's always, you know, filmmakers always wrangle such great metaphor it's out so of it. It's so damn primal. It, it, mm. it is primal and it is the most... Every other sport pretty much seems to be about winning. This is the only sport in which you actually... Your opponent has to be flat on the ground before you can win. It's about beating someone. And it's that intense tribalism of boxing. This guy against this guy. And Warburg's character finds himself essentially between two different families, two different tribes mm. who are boxing it out. And even though he is, he himself is trying to be a boxer, he is saying, look, if this, this isn't actually something you can apply to real life because people get stuck in the middle. Mm. Uh, we all need to work together, which would not work in boxing if the two boxes suddenly started working together. No. no. Do you think it found a good balance between the the, the Mickey story, uh, the Wahlberg story, and the, and the Dickie story? Because, I mean, that was that was another big issue that I have with the film is mm. that they seem to be competing. You know, it, it, it seemed like a film that was trying to be about two people, uh, trying to be about the, the stories of, of, of two men, and I don't know that they uh, sort of integrated them that well. Um, Maybe not. I do. I mean, it's a bit Shawshank to me in the sense that it's, it, it appears to be about one person, but it's actually about the other person and it's telling the story of their rehabilitation through the story of this other person yes. and how they react to them. So I, I guess that, that duality didn't... I, I thought it worked quite well. Yeah, it didn't bother me. I thought that was what one of the things that distinguished it from other boxing movies and, and made it different to, say, Rocky. Because mm. like, otherwise it would have... If it was just about Warburg's journey, it would have just been Rocky. I was worried it was going to be Raging Bull because of the, the brothers, brothers thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, or, the automatic assumption. But yeah, uh, nobody's quite that volcanic. Um, as, as Jake LaMotta True. I, I think of the best picture nominees that I've seen I've seen eight of them it's the least effective but I still li- um, I still had a good time um, I, but I haven't seen Kids Are Alright or True Grit yet which brings us to which brings us to another year <laughs> <laughs> um, well yeah True Grit was um, uh, every, everyone's talking about how it's, it's one of the great Cohen films of all time uh, I love the Coens. I'm, I can't, cannot wait for somebody to come on here and do the Coens so we can just yeah. dive headfirst in their filmography. Yeah. I don't think it's it's one of one of their best. That is not. It's still a compliment, yeah. like because they've done so many great films. Um, but it's such a it's a really terrific, straightforward story. Very faithful to the Charles Portis book. Uh, and I haven't seen the John Wayne film, so I can't compare it to that. Mm. But it was just uh, fantastic performances, a very satisfying tale. It really felt like they were trying to pare back their style just to do something that was aesthetically entertaining but still has some depth to it. Uh, And there's nothing I can fault about it, really. Well, and this is the thing that I don't get because there are a lot of people who uh, have been talking about the fact that it, uh, you know it doesn't look like a Coen Brothers film, it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers film, and I don't I don't see where that comes from because you know it's it's just you know it's steeped in their humor, it's steeped in their um, you know the their the, their elegance in being able to move uh, so quickly from you know this this oddball comedy to just intense brutality mm. um you know and stellar stellar performances um you know I, I i agree with you i don't think that it's at you know 
in the top rank of of their work but um you know hugely hugely entertaining film uh fell apart a little bit in the third act uh i thought mm-hmm. i started watching uh, a different film and you know one climactic scene in in particular where uh um, you know everyone's fates and, and fortunes are you know about to be uh discovered and uh you know there's uh, just cinematography just kind of took a weird turn and uh, but but yeah very very minor i really really enjoyed Haley stanfield uh, i thought that um uh, she did the most gorgeous uh you know judy garland wizard of oz performance that i've seen <laughs> in a very long time yeah fantastic yeah but yeah j- uh jumping over to another year you were talking about michael e before and i i honestly think i've seen everything he's done and mm. i think this is one of his best films wow like, top three I, I just think the themes he brings out and the way he depicts them is uh, I'm being very inarticulate in talking mm. about it because it's very difficult to sort of mm. really get into the analysis or, or summarize it but it, it's just a fantastic film and I yeah I loved it fantastic I'm looking forward to that um mm. yeah um I've been converted to Mike Lee in recent yeah. years as a yourself yeah. we seem to have the both we, we we both have partners who are ridiculously into Mike Lee yeah. yes <laughs> yes <laughs> And been uh, indoctrinated. Have you? Uh, no, no. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, uh, you yeah. a fan? Yes, yes, mm. I am. Not. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a a, a disciple level fan, but mm. uh, you know, certainly appreciate his work and and always willing to give him my time. Mm. Now, Catfish is a documentary that, after months and months of uh, of discussion and hype, and hopefully not too many spoilers. Mm has come out. I first saw it uh, back at MIF in July mm-hmm. and That's just recently rewatched it. Yep. Um, I actually had misgivings the first time I watched it. I was not convinced by much of it. You know, a big part of documentaries, especially this this past year where we've had so many real stories turn out to be not real, you, you really question um, the veracity of, of docos and this is one I was deeply suspicious of. of and then on the second viewing when I was looking out for these things, a lot of these, those suspicions went away. And it's on the second viewing that I thought this is a fantastic doco and a really, really intelligent look at a part of our society that really needs to be looked at in, the, in this new century. Mm. What do you think? Um, yeah, I loved it. Um, it works as... It works on a purely visceral level as, you know, creepy internet nightmare story. Mm. Um, but it also works as, yeah, a real look at what social media means and how we represent ourselves and how so many people are sort of yeah sort of giving themselves a clean slate as far as you know and painting the picture that the idealized picture of themselves to other people mm. and often in some cases you know completely wrong obviously we don't want to go too far into it because yeah it's going to be hard twists. to talk about yeah the um, first rule of catfish <laughs> is that you don't talk about catfish <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it, that's and that's Really, the only problem that I have with this film is is how uh, it's it's sort of been positioned, and not and not just the way that it's been you know put out there, but the way that a lot of the conversations have been developed uh, around it. Um, sort of this notion that you know the film is is this big mystery, and you know it's it's what's going to happen, and even like you know the trailer sort of descends into you know the silly Blair Witch. Oh my god, the trailer makes it look like a horror movie. I know. Um, and and yeah. sorry to interrupt you for a second. It was picked up by Rogue, who are a universal genre arm. Really? Yeah. Like, they, they distribute things like Hot Fuzz and um, whatever Neil Marshall's last thing, and all this sort of thing. Like, they, they, they distribute 
action and horror movie. There you go. That's the reason. Yeah, it's and and a that's not the film for anyone who's going into it looking for that film. Uh, that's not it. Um, there there is something incredibly special here, and and you know I I you know maybe say slightly. Um, a little bit more mundane when it comes to notions of you know exploring social media, exploring ideas of culture. You know, it does it does make points. It makes valid points. Um, it does it in a stylish way. I don't find uh, what it was saying or how it was saying it in that regard uh, to be uh, you know particularly sort of uh, you know amazing. Um, what I did find to be beautiful about the film, though, was uh, in, in, in the second half, uh, when it gets down to the level of individuals and portraits of individuals um, and, and really, you know, exploring the, the, the people at the heart of the concept, mm. um, I, I thought that it, it just, you know, it, it moved to a completely different level and, uh, you know, it, it became, you know, something that uh, is on par with, with maybe even some of the, you know, Maisel's best work in terms of how mm. they portray the individuals the compassion that they yeah. have for the individuals and and um so so if you're going to go see it go see it for that don't go see it because you're expecting you know uh you know gimmicks and a three-ring yeah. circus twists yeah yeah I, th- I think it's a great uh great counterpoint almost to not the social network as everyone's been saying mm. but unstoppable what i was saying about it before about how we all live our lives through mm. you know it, nothing is of worth unless it's recorded unless it has an audience and that's I think that is the point of Catfish. And I agree that the most touching part of the film is two people talking. Just a scene with two yeah. people talking without any of the artifice. Yeah, it, I really admire them there for handling it, everything with the sensitivity that they did. Because mm-hmm. it could have been really exploitative. And really... Yeah! But it's not at all. Yeah. And, 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 and you see them making the choice... Um, you know, there, 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 there are moments in the films where the filmmakers, uh, you know, you're, you're watching their process, you're seeing them at a crossroads, and they can choose what road to go down. And, and so not only do you see where they go, but you see how they get there, which is, uh, I think, you know, structurally fascinating. And, and obviously the scene that you were talking about, uh, or the, the extended moments you're talking about mm. of, of two people talking to each other is, is you know, just, it's, it's one of the, one of the best, uh, moments or, or you know uh, conceits I guess uh, using that in the most positive way possible uh, um, that I've seen in a documentary in a while so yeah it is it is one worth seeing if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it do it as soon as possible before yeah. too much gets spoiled Hi- yeah no highly recommended now finally we've uh, talked about there have been a lot of films lately that have divided divided us on the podcast <laughs> and this should be one I feel very guilty because neither of you guys have seen The Green Hornet oh, no. and I'm about to trash it and I feel like somebody should be here to defend it uh, maybe we'll edit someone else in I'd actually like oh here's our special fourth guest The Green Hornet now let me say some nice things about it because Michelle Gondry directed it and I love Gondry and his direction is mm. fantastic Seth Rogen and Jay Chow are both really good in their roles I think that's really smart casting I think they're both fantastic uh, and I've always liked Diaz and uh, Waltz. Mm. But the problem is that the script is really poor. And I think uh, I've always cited Ocean's 12 as the perfect example of why you can't have a good, good film without a good script. Because I love everything in Ocean's 12 except the script. I think <laughs> the script is terrible. And the, as a result, the film doesn't quite work, even mm. though Soderbergh's direction is top-notch in that. Uh, and Green Hornet, it makes some interesting choices and then it makes some really bad ones I think uh, one of the biggest problems is that we don't like 
uh, is it Rex Reed or is is that his father? Brit. Brit Reed. Oh, we don't like Brit Reed. <laughs> Rex Reed's an awful critic from the <laughs> 60s oh, is he? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, we don't like him either <laughs> no. then. Uh, <laughs> no. no, Brit Reed is, uh, he's a really unlikable character. He starts off as a jerk. And I thought the journey was going to be he was going to learn some things, he was going to grow. And he sort of does, but mostly he remains a jerk throughout. Mm. There's a there's a running thing where Kato does all the work yeah. and he keeps taking credit for it. There's no reason why he should think that he's beating up all these guys mm. while Kato is. And he so he keeps insisting that he's the one who does all the work and he acts like a jerk to Kato and he acts like a jerk to love interest. And at no point is it endearing. He just becomes more of a jerk as the film goes on. And it's really unpleasant. And then there are these bizarre, cho- like none of the jokes work. All of the jokes are him going, "Can I, can I get a hug, y'all?" You know, it's mm. it's that that sort of that that really annoying thing. And that's every every line of dialogue he has <laughs> is along those lines that he wrote for himself. Of, yeah. yeah. Well, but with the lack of progression in the character, he he starts off as an immature jerk. He ends up as an immature jerk. How much of that do you think would come down to the script, and how much of that would you think comes down to sort of you know Gondry's preoccupations with sort of uh, you know extended adolescence and you know these these sort of you know emotionally uh, static male center figures? That's a good point. I think I I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not sure who's who to lay that at the feet of. Um, it does feel like a half-baked script, so uh, that's why I'm sort of laying it at the feet of the, the writers of mm. uh, Rogan and, and Goldberg. Uh, yeah, and it's... And you can edit out... You can edit out Diaz's character without losing anything. Mm. Christopher like Waltz... like Gangs of New York all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Christoph Waltz's character is is really misguided. Like, he's not that... I think they're trying to go for the humor with him and it doesn't yeah. quite work. He doesn't quite understand all of the lines he's saying. And there are, there are moments where he suddenly, you want to talk about characters suddenly learning lessons because it's convenient in the plot yeah. for them to do it. Oh my God, there is one, there is one bit, and this sequence is actually really well put together. It's where Rogan suddenly figures out everything that's been going on and it all comes together. And it's really good except for the fact that he gets new information from his dead father who comes and narrates and tells him stuff that he couldn't have known otherwise. <laughs> I, there's no explanation for it. I don't know where this is coming from. And then... Superman the movie. <laughs> and there's this Kato vision thing where, where we get to see how Kato sees all these, you know, all the bad guys and he yeah. figures out what he's going to do. And then, and then Reed gets it. Rogan's character gets it at the end just because it's convenient for him to suddenly know you know I knew Kung Fu you know yeah. it's that scene where he suddenly knows it for no reason there's yeah. been no build up there's been no training montage and nobody shoved a jack in the back of his head a la Matrix exactly yeah. yes it's uh, that, was a, that was a brilliant Keanu by the way oh thank you, thank you. <laughs> we actually uh, I actually edited Keanu back in later so what you're actually hearing is the post production on that <laughs> But yes, I uh, I do feel that because so many people have have loved Green Hornet uh, that somebody should be here to defend it. But on the other hand, I like a soapbox. So. Yeah, <laughs> so. this is this is your time to unabashedly bash it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I would say oh, this has been one. Lee's corner. <laughs> <laughs> it's you need, a, you need an actual corner. soapbox to stand on, like Angry Anderson's Angry Soapbox from midday in the eighties. I need a high horse <laughs> standing on a soapbox. Oh, That's what I need. All right, now, Mr. Rominski, I have to ask, with the help of Paul, who did you pick as your... Helen's for Hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. Darren Aronofsky. <sighs> the great Darren Aronofsky. You, you know what? I think we should get 
Rob to record that Hell is for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month sting. And, and just, just have a button it. we press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right, we'll do that after. <laughs> let me, let me. Hell is for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month. <laughs> I got a little turned on then, I have to say. Ooh. I'm sorry. Half masked? <laughs> that's, that's quite personal, but I'll show you later. Um, but so why, why did you pick Mr. Aronofsky? Mm. I find him to be fascinating as a filmmaker on on so many levels. Uh, you know, looking at the films that he's made, uh, looking at the themes that that he delves into uh, religiously uh, in terms of obsession and and you know almost on this meta level that um, you know he his obsession with the subject matter carries through all of his films. And um, so you're seeing an obsessed person in in a way making films about singular pursuits obsessions I, I think I could probably shoehorn a few more times with the word <laughs> obsession this, but no it's um, like you're obsessed with you know, it yeah. yeah yeah I mean um, people visually accuse him of not not completely without merit uh, accuse him of, of you know maybe being uh, you know a bit flashy um, you know a bit sort of uh, you know overly heavy on the showmanship uh, I I personally love what he's done visually but um you know I, I can see where those things come into uh play but uh you know just the sheer ambition of what he's tried to do on so many levels in terms of storytelling in terms of the way that he presents his films in terms of uh you know what he writes um and 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 just taking a step back the career that he's had he's had you know i think from incredibly promising young director um you know navigating uh the the system to where he's finally gotten to now with with black swan and a genuine commercial success um you know every film that we've seen from him after his first two um you know whether it be sort of uh you know the fountain uh and then you know the wrestler both of those films were were surprises that they even got made at all mm. and uh for him to have finally gotten to the point i i think it's a fascinating progression uh but very interested to hear sort of uh you know in general what what your guys thoughts are on him and uh uh you know particularly you lee uh what your thoughts were uh, on him being chosen well i uh i was delighted that chosen is in jewish or chosen <laughs> <laughs> well i have thoughts on that as well uh no i was delighted that you picked him because i i think the world of him and i love talking about his films but but <laughs> no there's no but yeah, no, I find him a fascinating figure too. It's a cinema of, um, I find it's a cinema of obsession and um, psychosis, mm. and one is often the result of the other. From uh, and that's the the through line through all of them, through Pi, through Requiem, through the, uh, the the Fountain, the Wrestler, and Black Swan. Which is it's nice to see an auteur with a through line like yeah. that. Um, and it's funny too because I mean Pi was so off the chart, weird, and fiercely independent and. And it's funny now that you see him now. He, he's still independent, and he's yeah. still, you know, he, he he still has his through line. But yet he's become one of those regular Oscar guys now. You know, it's like three of his five films have been nominated for Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's finally got he's finally gotten the best director nomination. He's finally you know yeah, um, getting like it's usually it's the actors mm. that are being nominated or the screenplay or whatever. But yeah, I find it's kind of interesting. He's one of those. Paul Thomas Anderson type guys that's managed to straddle both sides of the street and do it without losing his integrity. Or his well, speaking of P.T. Anderson, I, I think you know we were talking a while back about great first films done for almost no money, and I think you know up there with Chris Nolan's following, with Primer, with Hard Eight slash Sydney, 
a pie is absolutely up there. And it took me a few viewings to get it. I watched it for the third time recently. Mm. And the first two times, I really, really admired it. Yeah. But it, the third time, I loved it. Like, it really hit me. And it was like, it had just opened up. And I was finally understanding what it was about. Mm. And mm. I, I find it to be such an extraordinary, extraordinary film. And such an interesting look at, like, mathematics and... The, the quote I always pull out is one of my favourite quotes about the film, and I wish I, I... I keep ripping it off, but it came from a Total Film article, which was... Uh, they called it the year's best Jewish horror film about maths. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Yeah, why, who would think to, to make a film like that, assuming that other people would want to see it? Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It works so well. Uh, it's... But it does work well, you know, and I think to, you know, sort of people of our age, seeing it for the first time when it came out, um, you know, a special especially people involved uh, in, in creativity, um, you know, even on a subconscious level, uh, it, it worked so well as a metaphor for the creative process and for an artistic life. And how far do you have to give yourself to uh, your passions in order to find, you know, some level of perfection? Because ultimately that's, that's the end point of, you know, each of these narratives, uh, whether, you know, you go through Pi, uh, you know, to a certain extent, Requiem, which we'll get to in a moment, mm. um, you know, Fountain, The Wrestler, uh, you know, Black Swan, it's, it's, it's this pursuit of this abstract vision of perception, or of perfection, rather, um, mm. uh, you know, as filtered through the perception of the individual characters, and, and you know, as, as, as a young man, um, you know, it was, it was a very sort of, you know, powerful musing on, on these notions of, of, of passion, and, and when you are passionate about things, and when you make choices in your life to, you know, pursue these things to their logical ends, and to the degree that you can, um, you know, how far, how far will it take you, and how far will you let yourself be taken? So you were on Aronofsky from day one, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, Pi was yeah one of those one of one of those movies for me. Yeah, yeah, um, one of those clarion formative experience. Yeah. yeah, again, it's a film I more admire than like. Every time I watch it, I seem to turn it on at eleven thirty at night for some unknown reason. I really need to watch it during the middle of the day because I invariably end up falling asleep. And it then, is such a middle of the night film. Yeah, it and is. then and then turn it. Yeah, it well, yeah, it, it feels like a film written, directed, and acted and experienced. You know, at three a.m. in a fugue. So much of, of it is um, is uh, stylish and scary smart, and there's uh, there's obvious references. Like it's very like the look is very cyberpunk influenced, particularly mm. things like Tetsuo. Um, and as a tale of obsession, it's certainly pungent. Um, I, f- I do find the lead character quite distancing. I do find it a bit, um, a bit arm's length, but I think there's um, there's certainly a lot to admire. I did enjoy it the second time I saw it than than the first, mm. um, but it certainly sets the tone for the career to come. Um, yeah, but there's uh, there's some wonderful stuff, and just yeah, as you say, the ambition of the thing is crazy. Um, to you know, shoot it yourself on sixty grand mm. and. and um, in a New York loft somewhere. Um, and, you know, anyone who says that you can't make a good-looking film for next to nothing um, needs to, to go back and watch that film and learn how to become creative with, with how you film. Mm, it yeah. doesn't necessarily... It doesn't have anything to do with your cameras. It doesn't have anything to do with what stock you're shooting on. It has to do with where you put the camera and how you make the camera interact with your characters. And, and in that sense, for first-time filmmakers working on a budget it's mm. it's uh part of my french goddamn masterclass. <laughs> and then uh how you cut those images together yeah. I mean, yeah. i'd rather see that film so i mean the story of pi and the, the script of it is better told in that form than it would be with a, a 20 million dollar budget you know yeah. i'm not sure that would improve the film no no, no it would mm. it would yeah. it would destroy the film 
So onto onto Requiem for a Dream, which which was my first Aronofsky film, and uh, was a pretty much a devastating experience all around. Brilliant film, um, but left me in the fetal position afterwards, rocking back and forth. And there aren't many filmmakers who can do that. Uh, and it's one I'm I'm not eager to revisit as much as I love it. It's one of those films I love, but from a distance now. <laughs> See, I didn't find that at all. Really? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, and it's some of it is incredibly bruising. But it just it didn't absorb me like that. I found that the Alan Burstyn uh, story is incredibly heartbreaking. And that's the story that really cut me in half. Yeah. Mm. The others, I don't know. There is that certain amount of, well, it is heroin. And, you know, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. Mm. Whereas Burstyn's character is the complete opposite. Yeah, yeah. It's diet pills that just suddenly hijack her life mm. you know um, so I found myself sympathising a lot more with the Ellen Burstyn character yeah fair enough than, I, the, than look, the other three from memory that's what hit me I think but, it was her yeah. that hit me yeah but god it's audacious yeah. again you know and and visually and his work with actors I mean he coaxed a good Marlon Wayans performance who does that <laughs> he needs a lifetime achievement award for that no, he does <laughs> but I have to, I have to ask Rob because you were in, on the ground floor with Aronofsky and the things that you loved about Pi because you then have certain expectations of where a filmmaker is going to go. How did you then respond to Requiem? Well, you see, and and and, and here's here's the thing that that you know, if I if I wasn't sold or if I had any reservations from the beginning, which which I really didn't, but uh, you know, to find out that his film number two was uh, uh, was tackling one of my favorite novels by by one of the most brilliant authors ever born, uh, Hubert Selby Jr. Before I'd seen a film a frame of that film, uh, just you know, reading interviews with Aronofsky, knowing how he was going to approach the subject matter was was fairly convinced that, that I was going to love it and I did so it's so it's hard for me to talk about in a sense because uh, you know coming at it from the book and then into the way he interpreted it you know obviously there's some there's some brutal moments in the film but uh, the thing that I think carried through was this this authorial voice um, first from the novel and then you know sort of passed into Aronofsky's hands is the most genuine, unconditional love for these supremely damaged characters, um, and everything that is shown about them, even even their darkest moments, even their most brutal moments, is, is handled with a genuine, you know, love and, and and caring for these people, and you know, and and ultimately, you know, just the notion of you know drugs, which is obviously the through line through through what all the characters deal with, even though they they've got their own demons. Um, and uh, you know the what we chase and, and what we do to to fill the holes left inside us by you know a lack of love or, or maybe not a lack of love but a lack of feeling love mm. um, and um, you know executed with every tool in the arsenal and and you know once again you've got a filmmaker like Aronofsky who goes from a minuscule budget to something more ambitious and uh, manages to to grow. Proportionally, I mean, his his ideas and what he was able to execute, um, you know, with uh, more resources, um, you know, there there wasn't a dollar uh, that was misspent yeah. on yeah. that film, and and everything is on screen, you know, unlike a lot of supreme visual stylists, which which I think he he definitely is. He he mixes ideas drawn from cinema, ideas drawn from television, ideas drawn from um, animation, from games, from you know, music video, like all of these. All of these different things, whereas some directors will just, you know, fixate on, you know, two or three tricks. He's bringing them all into to sort of a, a synthesis of visual storytelling. 
And I think at this point, I think the uh, contributions of one of his greatest collaborators comes into focus, the one uh, Clint Mansell. Oh, yes. I was going to mention that because I think if you talk about top five director-composer relationships, that's got to be in there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I didn't realise that Mansell was there from day one, watching Pi again the other yeah. night. Yep. He did the Pi score. Yep. It's a great score, too. It's yeah. really sparse and yeah, perfect. Yeah, it, it doesn't get the love that the Requiem score does, yep. but um, it, it's... It, because you hum Requiem, you yeah, find yeah. yourself just singing Requiem in the shower. <laughs> yeah, and it's in every other trailer, you know, because yeah. it's so iconic and so stirring. And I love hearing you talk about Requiem. That's, that has actually made me want to go back and revisit it, which is something I wasn't sure I was ever going to be able to do. <laughs> so well, now I have to watch it again. Yeah. Now, uh, The Fountain, uh, speaking of obsession, talking about obsessive characters and watching The Fountain and Pi again in such close proximity, the themes of how... Uh, I guess spirituality and um, uh, mysticism is informed by science and maths. That's another continuing theme. That's mm. something he's obviously very interested in. The the fountain just yeah just killed me. It was my favorite film of that year, and uh, every time I watch it, it gets better. I see more. It's 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 a very difficult film. I think to love because I think the two hardest films to sell are fantasies and melodramas, and this is a fantasy melodrama. Yeah. What did you guys think? Yeah, I, I find it incredibly distancing. I, and it felt to me to be a little more surface level than I expected. I, I guess going in, I, I thought there was this sort of ambiguity about, you know, this sort of thing about past lives and future lives. Like, you know, we, we exist forever on a temporal plane and there's no past or future lives. It's all happening at once and that sort of thing. But it's like, you see the film and it's like, no, she's just writing a book. Um, I, <laughs> that's what I got from it. Um, I, I got that the last time I watched it, which is... I got something completely different, which is that the whole film was set inside the bubble, and he is being—he regresses to to his memory of the sort of middle story, mm. the, the the contemporary story, and it's not just random cutting. It's that he says, "All right, let's go back. I want to remember it. I want another chance," and remembers it. And in that, he's reading the book, which is what the first story is. Mm. So it's all flash. I mean, the film is about regret. It's about memory. It's about the chances you take and can you take is there another path to go on yeah. there's there, there is a lot going on under, yeah i like i i don't know to me the film takes place essentially in the present day and the rest is the, i mean very evocative of the theme but it's but it's all within the book that that vice is writing mm. you know th- there's so much to appreciate in this film uh but i would call it a a, a film for uh you know people who um you know are fans of his work rather than, um, you know, for, for the casual viewer because, um, you know, you see him trying to reach and trying to expand and, and, and you know, trying to progress, but, but it's, it's very palpable. Um, it's, it's, it's a film where the difficulties of the filmmaking and the filmmaker are, are very apparent on screen. And uh, Do you feel he was bringing his, his aesthetic back, like really paring it down? for the wrestler almost as an exercise to see if he could just do sort of something without all the um, all the artifice of, of his other films. I don't mean artifice in a bad way. Mm. I mean, you know, because it is a very, very, very sparse film. Yeah, it's very pulled back mm. compared to the first three that, yeah, do do visual gymnastics. Mm. Um, but yeah, the wrestler is a step in a completely Spartan social realist kind of direction, mm. but equally pungent with obsession and, 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 um, mm. and um, artistic perfection. And, and and I wouldn't say that it's uh, um, you know uh, a step away from 
visually what he had been doing. It's it's more of a distillation of it um, because I mean you still see stylized moments, the long shots walking behind Mickey Rourke, yeah. seeing the world how he sees it. You know, wrestler is interesting because I it's it's my least favorite of his films, and that's most, really yeah. Well, wow. that that's look. Wow. I've always said that you if you're a fan of somebody, if your least favorite. Yeah, uh, their work is something you really, really love, yeah. and I really, really love the wrestler. But my my only problem with it is, with it is in the script. It, it occasionally dips into cliche, uh, but in terms of what you know, in in the context of Aronofsky's career, it's it's another step forward in his ability to get extraordinary performances out of actors mm. and just wrangle these things you or wring out emotions that you never thought you would see actors give. Rock just turns around and breaks your heart. You know, it's like it's such a great use, but it's a great use of what Rock has to give as well. Mm. It's like Aronofsky just perfectly taps into everything that Rock has at that point. And you know, if, yeah. like yeah, I've I've heard some comments about you know Rock's plastic surgery immobilized face and just has him kind of cock his head. But it's like, but Aronofsky uses this all so poetically. Well, because I've, I've, yeah, the ways pain to use is the there. Eyes and yeah. Yeah, and, I've, I've described and the pain, it. But the pain is etched on that plastic surgery messed up face because because that's the it's the pain of a life lived and lost and you know. Well, yeah, but I've, I mean to almost contradict what I said before about directing actors, but sort of in 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 tandem with that, I did describe the acting as in the wrestler as uh, sort of the cooler shove effect in in feature form uh, because a lot of the emotions that you get out of Vicky Rourke are basically cutting to something emotional and then looking at his face doing very little mm. and I don't want to take anything away from from Rourke but uh, but a lot of that is in the camera placement a lot of the emotion that comes out of his character is in what Aronofsky chooses to show you and when mm. but I think it's also what he's being directed to do as well and it's mm. and it's and that's part of Aronofsky's genius as well because when you actually look at it it's it's it, he gives an incredibly restrained performance everything is matter of fact there are no there are no huge flamboyant Mm. moments um you know and and you know like the the one that always destroys me i mean you you talk about you know requiem being emotionally draining and and i think i find the wrestler to be the mo- the most emotionally draining and yeah. and you know probably yeah. down to to the moment of you know the piece of meat s- speech that he gives and mm. you imagine any other combination of actor and director doing that and it and it becomes you know this big like you know this is my de niro moment sort of uh the music know. swells yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Becomes yeah, yeah. you know yeah. this is uh you know chance for for you know the the modern day actor to you know live out his you know 70s new hollywood fantasies um <laughs> That's a, that's but, a good point. <laughs> but but Rourke doesn't play it like that. He just he just says it like any father would say that to any daughter. And mm. and yeah, then then I break up, break out in tears, and end yeah. up on the floor in the fetal position. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 just such a lovely performance, and it's mm. such a and and it's it feels complete. You know, it's just there's such a great unity to the film, to the journey, to the way it ends, and the mm. way it, it's it's just I think it's a beautiful flick. And his fifth film is out this month, Black Swan. So this is a perfect time to talk about it. Mm. How did we respond to this? Now, it's interesting you were saying before about uh, Aronofsky was originally going to do The Fighter as a companion piece to The Wrestler. Mm. Um, And then suddenly dropped that in favour of of Black Swan because I think he found a better companion piece. That's exactly what I was going to say, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice. Yeah, um, 
the, because, I mean, it's odd that he would have considered the fighter a companion piece at one point. Well, I think everyone doesn't... else considered it a companion piece just because mm. we didn't know anything about them. So it was like, oh, no. wrestling and boxing. Yeah, yeah the wrestler, the fighter. They've got yeah. similar titles. Exactly. Whereas, no, Black Swan is much more a, 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 a psychological and spiritual companion piece. Mm. And he even shoots a lot of it in the same way. Again, he places the camera behind Natalie Portman in a lot of the shots, mm. walking behind her, seeing what she sees. Mm. Um, but it's the wrestler, it's kind of the wrestler meets repulsion. <laughs> Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all, but my first reaction after I saw the film was, wow, uh, you know, five films later, he's finally made the sequel to Pi because yeah. you see two very similar uh, stories of this, um, you know, neurosis leading to this internalized existence, except the endings are different. And one character chooses one path and the other chooses the other. Exactly. And to, to I agree completely with that uh, mm. to add a more superficial uh, reference that will support this theory there is a character there is an actor the same actor in both films playing the same character in both films he's credited as the same guy and I'm pretty sure it's the creepy guy on the subway in both films yes I thought that too watching yeah, by yes. the other night I haven't checked the credits yet but I was looking I was like is that the same dude it doesn't say guy on subways he's like called Mr. something or uncle something but it's the same actor same character bam there you go they're set in the same universe wow but but yeah, uh, but did you? How did you feel about the film? Like, how did you react to it? I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was hilarious. Um, which you know, it, it is a weird thing to say about a film like this. But but you know, it, it just just there was a playfulness that I think that you know people think is unintentional, but I think was very intentional. Mm. And, and you know, these moments of the blackest humor that that sort of pop up in the weirdest spots in different of his films um, you know even even some of the hate to say it moments of black humor in Requiem because they are there yeah. um, you know and, and, and some of the moments of oddness that, that happen in Pi um, you know and and just yeah some of the matter of fact sort of life moments that, that happen in The Wrestler you know it, it's all it's all a big stew here it's, it's mm. you know unabashed melodrama um, yes and, and he does it better than it anyone does feel working. Like, yeah. It does yeah. feel like a combination of Ultron of the four films, doesn't it? It yeah. feels like them all coming together. You've got the melodrama of the fountain. You've got this, you know, the sort of the gritty, you know, the the the, the gritty kind of first person, you know, of the approach of the wrestler. Yeah. You've got the you, the completely off the hook kind of, you know, um, psychological horror of Pi. Mm. Um, to, to use a metaphor I already regret using it's his Jay and Silent Bob strike back <laughs> but good yeah <laughs> I like Jay and Silent Bob uh, no this is uh, for me this is, I, I thought that Darren Aronofsky was one of the best directors working today and then I saw Black Swan and, say, and then rubbed out the word today and changed it to of all time <laughs> I think Black Swan is my favourite of his films it is almost, uh, I think, you know, you need to let these things settle in, but it could be one of my favourite films of all time. Wow. It just did everything. Well, The Fountain's one of your right. favourite films of all time, isn't it? Um, no, it was, it was my favourite film of that year, The mm. Fountain, and I thought that's going to be my favourite Aronofsky film. I, I, can, I can live with that. And then, you know, Black Swan has just consumed me entirely. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't talk after I saw it. Really? Yeah. It is, it is a, a work of perfection in my eyes. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the performance he coaxes from Portman. I mean, if there's any doubt that he's able to push yeah. actors, you know, to give everything is that was that doubt is allayed. Unbelievable, obliterated mm. here. That mm. performance, she is. It's finally the promise that she showed in the professional all those years ago. Yeah, like, finally. Well, it's that. I mean, you know, here. Black Swan is about the dual the duality of light and dark. Mm. 
and she plays every, she doesn't just switch between happy and sad she is happy and sad in in differing uh, amounts in every single scene mm. and yet it doesn't feel one note it's just you see all this pain and joy inside her on her face in every moment yeah and yet it's so nuanced and it undulates throughout the film and it's it's one of the greatest lead performances i've seen it, wow. it's it's amazing that the the character starts pitched so high to mm. at the beginning of the film is she's so high strung she's so tightly wound and you almost wonder you know throughout the course of the film how is he going to wind her any tighter than this without making her break until the moment when she's supposed to yeah but he does it yes mm. And I love I love that his themes of black and white, uh, of light and dark, operate on every level. Like he's not afraid to make it the most surface aesthetic. This character's wearing white. This one's wearing black, mm. and it, it works because it gives a lot of clues as to what's going on with other characters in what they're wearing and what's around them and who they look at and talk to. And there are a lot of there's almost another film going under underneath based on color alone or mm. shade alone but it's done with such a visceral impact that say if you if you look at you know filmmakers who you know make their stock and trade to do similar things like someone like Peter Greenway where mm. it's 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 all intellectualized it's all you know you look like you're you know watching a university lecture mm. when, um you know with Aronofsky in this film he he codes it like that and and he presents this sort of pageantry of of the visuals and and the very identifiable cues but but without robbing it of that you know kick in the gut exactly i had to go and see it a second time almost immediately so i could read it intellectually so i could see Mm. because the first time it was just me you know back in my seat getting punched in the face in the best way possible yeah that ending is incredible ah Uh, and the beginning the moment it starts you're just like what am I watching I haven't felt that way since Lost Highway which is one of my three favourite films of all time which just from the moment it began I suddenly became afraid of what I was about to see and no film was done that until Black Swan wow that's big. So, yes, I love it. And, and yeah. I, I want people to stop calling it... A, a, there seems, seems to be some perception in the, in the media that it's a film about ballet. That it's yeah. this, you know, it's, it's like, it's nothing, it's nothing to... Uh, ballet uh, is the vehicle of the obsession. Like, it's about yeah. the state of somebody's mind. Well, no, like Pi isn't like about math they... and Requiem's not about drugs. Exactly. And, you know, The Fountain's not about a spaceship. And, <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. The Wrestler's not about, about wrestling. wrestling. Well, I, so, I, yeah, I, so I like sick- that, they've, that the media is... is thinks it's about ballet because it it continues the grand tradition of completely missing the point of great films uh, which is <laughs> what they you've do you've got all these ballerinas yeah. coming out and going oh they should have cast a dancer and the it's yeah. like and it's all the cliches of ballet it's like yeah well he's playing with them for the middle ah yeah yeah it just drives me insane yeah it drives me insane it's yeah it's um it's it's as good a uh, portrait of somebody's um psychological breakdown <laughs> due to mm. obsession as i've seen in a long long time agreed yeah, it's probably my favorite. It's between that and the wrestler for my favorite. Yeah, Aronofsky. Yeah, and 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 I'll make the bold call: the best use of masturbation in a horror scene in any film of yes. all time. Maybe I spit on your grave, yeah. <laughs> but it's between those two. Thank you so much for coming on and for uh, for picking Aronofsky because it's it's always great to talk about a filmmaker of that caliber. Oh, glad you could have me. And thanks for being um, ridiculously eloquent and making us look like um, Crow Magnons. Yeah, That's thanks great. for that. Yeah, yeah appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, yeah. Rob. And um, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. Yeah, true. And we'll uh, see you all next month. Catch you next month. Keep watching.